When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to have on Derek Bodner because he strikes a fun balance. He is a scout for Draft Express, which I personally feel is the best draft website. It is a must-read if you don't already read it, but I don't know why you wouldn't already read it. And also, he is a beat writer for the Philadelphia 76ers. So I thought that that struck an interesting balance. So we spend the first 40 minutes about talking about the draft, and so focusing on the top four guys, D'Angelo Russell, Moutier, Okafor, and Towns, and then we get into a lot of the other guys in the lottery, Willie Cauley-Stein, Justice Winslow, everybody in that range, and into the sleepers in the first round and everything that he likes, and then we move on to the Philadelphia 76ers, which I think is a fascinating situation, and I think that where they are going and the decisions they have made, especially at the trade deadline, are something that people who are fans of the league should understand because they might be blazing a new trail, and I'm very excited by it. So the conversation itself runs about an hour. I absolutely loved it. I think you'll like it too. And I didn't tell Derek this, but one of the goals for it was to try to get people who didn't follow college basketball much this year a sense of this draft. And I think that he did an excellent job of that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I had a lot of fun having it. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Thank you for having me. Excited to talk about the draft and talk about the prospects, partially because so many of them are still in. And I think the most interesting place to start is with the top group, and most people are seeing it as a top four. Is that what you're thinking in terms of the main guys in this class? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, And how you rank them, I think, probably depends a lot on on personal preference. I know a lot of people still have Julie Okafor first. I think there's certainly an argument to be made for Carl Towns. So I kind of lumped those two in a, in a first tier. 
kind of tier 1A and then tier 1B, the two point guards. Uh, and it's so fascinating because, you know, you've got two big men, two centers, power forward centers, depending on, on what you think of Towns, and then two point guards. And within those two groups, they both do it in very different ways. You know, you've got Okafor, who is as unique and as polished and as skilled of a post scorer and a post passer, really, as, as I've ever seen scouting, uh, certainly in his freshman year. Then you've got Towns, who's a guy who can really potentially dominate on both sides of the basketball. And for a lot of the season, that potential to dominate offensively was kind of in theory. Uh, he wasn't given the opportunity, wasn't you know really ready to take advantage of that opportunity. But in the last month or two, we've really started to see that that potential that he has. But he's also got that defensive potential, that ability to block shots, uh, that ability to, to force turnovers, to really rebound the ball on the de- defensive side of the court that Okafor doesn't really have right now, and some question may never have. So that, that's fascinating to watch and argue about. Then you've got the two point guards, which is you know D'Angelo Russell, who kind of a combo guard, but in the NBA today it doesn't really matter. Um, I don't even like the term combo guard because a lot of times it has that connotation that uh, he's kind of in between positions rather than he can play both positions. And I think Russell's kind of that odd circumstance where he can play like a point guard and play like a shooting guard. So I don't really, I don't really like using that word combo guard because of the connotation I think it has. Uh, but you know, he's he's, he's tall, six five. Uh, can shoot the lights out both from a catch and off, off the dribble, can come off of a screen, and just has a lot of creativity passing the ball. And I think you've seen all of that on display so far in the tournament. You know, obviously he had that one big game against VCU where he hit threes, he got to the free throw line, he made his shots, and he had that game against Arizona where he shot three for 19, uh, but at least, you know, passed the ball well and got his teammates involved. And then you've got Mudiay, who, you know, his game is, is based on speed and athleticism, getting into the paint making decisions off the pick and roll and attacking the basket. Uh, so really looking at those two and comparing those two, I think is fascinating. So I think the big question for me with D'Angelo Russell, and you, you know him better than I do, is can he run an NBA offense as the primary ball handler? Yeah, I, I think he can. You know, his, his passing, certainly I think, you know, at times he tries to do too much. But I think a lot of that circumstance, I don't think he really has the talent around him especially when he's going against these higher level, these, these better teams, to really play like a quote-unquote two-point guard. I think he's re- they rely upon his offense too much to really do that. Uh, but I think, I think he can pace himself well. I think he can change, change gears, change speeds, and really look to get his teammates involved when the game dictates that he should. To me, his, his biggest question so far this year, and not so far because the year's over, uh, but it's, it's getting that shot off against you know, NBA-quality defenders. Uh, and we released on Draft Express. We had a breakdown of of his his play versus, I think it was top fifty teams. And it, th- there's a very drastic change, uh, particularly you know with his three point shooting. He's shooting I think over fifty percent against teams that aren't in the, the top one hundred. Uh, so there's some question, and you kind of saw that now Arizona, and they've got a lot of of NBA perimeter defenders, defenders much less college perimeter defenders. Uh, they're a big team. They're an athletic team. So that was kind of a, a a team that you thought could shut down a one-man show like Ohio State is. But certainly, you know, you're going to look at that 3-for-19, and a lot of people are going to say that that's not really fair, and, and uh, that's certainly true. You never want to base too much off of one game, but it kind of continues the trend that's been going on throughout the season. So that, to me, is kind of his biggest question mark so far. And I, I don't think it's a question mark of whether he's going to succeed, because I think he's certainly, you know, he's got too quick of a release. He's too good shooting off the dribble. He's too good shooting off of screens to not succeed in the NBA but whether he's going to succeed enough to be that franchise player that you're hoping for with a top four pick. 
Yeah, so one of the issues that I've had just generally with the way that people talk about the league is that for me, an offensive role and a defensive role are very different things. And so that's why I started with whether he can run offense, because then to me, the second question, and it doesn't have to be the same answer, is do you feel comfortable with him defending ones, twos, or both? Not entirely, no. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of question marks there. And I think sometimes that's hard to really focus on at this level because you can do things in the college game to cover up a weak perimeter defender that you can't in the NBA game. And he's going to be going up against much tougher competition uh, than he will. I, I think there are, are certainly question marks. You know, with, with the offensive load he, he had to sustain for Ohio State, I think it's natural for the defensive side to come under a little bit, you know, him to be lax at times. Uh, but certainly he's not the quickest guy in the world. He's not the most, most athletic guy in the world. He makes up for that somewhat at the collegiate level with his length. But yeah, I think there's certainly some question mark whether or not he's going to be a passable defender, especially at the, at the one. Um, you know, running him off of, of picks at the one with some of these fast point guards who can shoot well enough that he's going to have to try to fight over. I think that's a legitimate concern. At the same time, he fits a really fun mold in today's NBA because he, if he's, let's say he's a two, I think defensively, let's say he's a two. What I like about him is that he complements a lot of these kind of new agey athletic ones, like let's say Eric Bledsoe. So you can give them both the responsibility of running the offense and you can give them both the responsibility of playing off the ball. I think that he would fit really well with one of those guys. And fortunately for him, there are a lot of them in the league now. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, like I said, you, you can play him off the ball, you can play him on the ball. Uh, he has legitimate talent to play either way. And being able to mold him, being able to put him in any situation that you want, I think is really going to help him early on in his career. Uh, certainly, you know, from a talent standpoint, having that ability to shoot off the pick and roll and make decisions off the pick and roll and also come off of screens, I mean, he gives, he gives coaches and teams a lot of opportunity to fit him into a scheme. Uh, and I think he's going to be really fun to watch as he adapts that game, as he adapts to the change in defenders, the change in speed. But I think he will adapt, and I think he will be good. The question is what level. And then for me, Moutier is more of a pure point guard in the sense of defensively, I would say, and offensively. You get in, He's in the mold from the limited amount I've seen of a guy like Russell Westbrook in the physical sense that he could defend twos, but I think he's probably more natural on ones. I think it gives him more of an advantage. Do you agree with that, at least defensively? Yeah, I mean, certainly... You know, his strength at that position is going to be a benefit. Uh, there aren't going to be many teams that are going to be able to, to body him up. Uh, and his quickness, um, he is a, a quicker player than D'Angelo Russell. He's going to be more suited to guard those those point guards. Coming off the pick and roll, he's going to be able to fight through the pick and roll. He's going to be able to, to really, you know, move his feet to defend them laterally. Uh, I think he has that capability. It's hard to really say based off of what he did in China. Uh, he didn't go up against, you know, over in China, you can only have two import players on the roster at a time. And a lot of times he wasn't going up against the American import players over there. Uh, so he was not defending the highest level of competition over there, uh, the highest level of athlete over there. So it's kind of, you kind of have to project a little bit. But I certainly think that he has the, the physical type to really be a, a potential menace on the defensive end if he really engages at the point guard spot and really pressure the, the point of attack. So yeah, I, I do agree that, that defending the point is probably his best role. And same question as we started with with Russell. Do you think that Moutier is ready to run an NBA offense or will get there eventually? I actually think his decision-making is a little underrated. Um, his ability to pass off the pick-and-roll, his willingness and his vision to pass off the pick-and-roll, uh, I think there's a little a little bit... I think he's a little underrated in that regard. You know, certainly any time a point guard comes in the league, there's there's a high level of... you really there's There's a big adjustment for them. 
And I think going against, you know, I think until he gets that shot to the point where teams really have to uh, respect it and go over the pick and roll, you know, I think there aren't going to be quite the passing lanes that there were for him over in China and, and in high school. But I think, I think as you know, he gets used to that as his jump shot improves. Yeah. I think I, I don't have too big of a concern. You know, I think a lot of times he plays a style getting into the lane, uh, really driving into the paint and making decisions off of there. And I think sometimes, you know, that's going to lead to some turnovers. Uh, and I think that's something that he has to really mature and, and, you know, get experience. I think he will correct most of those. So he's a little turnover prone, but I'm not, I don't have too big of a long-term concern on that. My biggest long-term concern with Moutier is his jump shot. Yeah. And, and that, that definitely makes sense. I, I'm excited also for him because I feel like he has a lot of room to grow. And when you think about point guards, I mean, I was critical of Damian Lillard and he's blown away my expectations, but what you see in those guys is that you, you're going to show something in the beginning, but you're going to have to get a lot better than you are right then. And with him, and that's true of a lot of those physically talented guys, I mean, Bledsoe is the same way, that I think that he can get as much better as he will need to get to be a relevant point guard in the league. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I Like I said, my long I don't have too much long-term concern about his decision-making. So fortunately, the big men in this draft, for the most part, are still in it. Whether you want to talk about what they can still show or where they are now, how do you see the Okafor Towns dynamic shaking out? Yeah, well, I think the biggest questions for me for Okafor are his shot blocking, um, his you know really complete lack of rim protection for a guy who is that high of a prospect, uh, his defensive rebounding, and his his pick and roll defense. And I think so far in the tournament he's been okay at that. Uh, you know, I think I think he blocked. He's blocked what, like five shots, four or five shots in the two games. He's offered some level of rim protection, and I thought he's been engaged more often than he hasn't so far defensively. And I think that's big for him. You know, I think for a guy who is so almost instinctive on the offensive end, and he has a counter for everything a defense throws at him, and he he probably you know a lot of he he can really run an offense from the post, which I think is extremely rare for something somebody of his age. Um, he seems to anticipate double teams and help defenders in a way that you just don't see for a guy of his age. But for somebody who's so instinctive on the offensive end, I think it's almost like the opposite on the defensive end. He almost strikes me as a guy who his entire high school career, his coaches have been telling him, you know, basically stand in the paint, be tall, and don't get into foul trouble. And it almost seems like that's the way he plays defense because he's so important on the offensive end that it almost seems like he's been trained, just don't get in foul trouble. Uh, and I think it's it's kind of hard to judge whether or not that is something that can be improved upon at the NBA level. I think when he gets to a program that's going to get him in, in top-level shape, and I think he made a lot of progress in that in the past year, but I think when you get him into an NBA program that can really you know, focus on that, it'll be interesting to see if he gains any explosiveness. But to me, it's all about you know, his defensive recognition. His, his, his reactions seem a bit slow. His decision whether to challenge a shot or not challenge a shot his positioning for defensive rebounds. It all seems like it's a second slow and it's not instinctive. He doesn't need to become Carl Towns on defensive end to be extremely valuable. His offense is so developed. His ability to run from the post, run an offense from the post, is so valuable. And his passing is, is I think, is going to be, you know, really his, I don't want to say his biggest strength, but what really separates him from the other extremely talented post scorers. So with all that, he doesn't need to become a, a dominant defender, but he does need to be passable. And I think right now, for large portions of the season, he's, he hasn't been. So, so far, I think so far so good in, in the tournament. I think he's, he's looked okay on the defensive end. Towns, again, his, his the complete opposite of that. He's a constant threat to block a shot. Uh, that whole Kentucky team really is. 
He's a good defensive rebounder. And he's, his offense has come a long way. He didn't have quite the same level of success against Cincinnati that he did against Hampton, which is just kind of to be expected. You know, but he can contribute in so many ways. Uh, his post game is, is coming along very quickly of late. He, he gets the line, he blocks shots, he forces turnovers. And I think he's, he's starting to showcase some of that perimeter game as well. Uh, I think he's a good passer from the perimeter. He's starting to make some jump shots. An area where he really hasn't concentrated on much this year, but is, is kind of evident because he's shooting over 80% from three or from free throw. Uh, so he's, he's to me, I, I love an all-around big like that. I love a big man who can really impact the game on both ends, who can dominate defensively, but also be, you know, if not a first option, a, a, certainly a second or third option. I think that's what he is down the line. And I'd like to see him, you know, showcase a little bit more in Kentucky's offense and, and, and really, you know, show you that inside-outside game that I think makes him so tantalizing. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of really good, interesting points there. And for me, what makes Okafor so compelling as a draft prospect is that I'm somebody who thinks that the primary role of a center is to be the rim protector and to do all that. But what Okafor brings are two very different questions that are both really fun. And one is, can a guy be so good offensively that the defense doesn't matter as much? And does he have enough upside to make that not something that really drags him down? I don't think it's ever going to be a, a true strength in the sense, though there, there are precedents of guys like Andrew Bogut wasn't a great defender when he came into the league, and look at him now. But can so can he make his negatives into at least a neutral, and are his positives so positive that they outweigh it more than they do for a guy like, let's say, Nikola Vucevic? No, I mean, there's there's I'm with you. There's There are two things I love in a big man. One is rim protection, and two is ability to pass the ball from when they get double teamed. Uh, there's no real wasted skill to me than a post player who can attract the double team, but then doesn't have the court sense to pass that out and really make his teammates better. You know, a lot of times Okafor gets compared to those other post scorers who maybe aren't aren't good defenders in guys like Vucevic, uh, guys like Al Jefferson, things of that sort. And to me, the real different differentiator between him and those guys is his passing out of the post. Uh, when he gets double teamed, he's as good as as any guy that I've I've seen, keeping the ball away from the defenders and making that read to find that open guy. And sometimes it doesn't always, you know. I think if you look just look at his assist totals, you don't necessarily see that because a lot of times it's it's what you'd call a hockey assist. It's you know him passing out of that, the defense rotating and finding an open guy in the corner. So I think when you, when that skill to me is fascinating. Um, it's not just an ability to attract double team in a post, but but to really improve a team offense around that. But you're right. I mean, there's, I think, serious question mark about whether he can be even an, an average NBA defender. Um, and, you know, certainly there are some, he's got, I think, more physical tools, especially if he, he improves just a little bit in terms of moving his feet laterally. Uh, he's got, you know, a huge seven foot five wingspan, which to me, I look at him and when he's decisive in his rotations, he can block some shots. Not again. He's never going to be Carl Towns. He's never going to be Nerlens Noel. But he can he can block some shots and at least make an impact on that end of the court. It's to me about decisiveness uh, and being able to maximize whatever physical tools he does have because he's not blessed with the best physical tools in the world on the defensive end. But he's blessed with enough where you know, like you said, you can even go to Marcus Sol. Marcus Sol doesn't exactly jump out of the building, but he's one of the best defenders in the NBA because his rotations are that good. Um, I think Okafor has you know, potential to be a better defender than he is. And it'll be fascinating to me to watch over the next few years whether or not he reaches that level. If I were to tell you right now that he turned into Marcus Gasol on offense and Al Jefferson on defense, that would be a pretty good player, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I think you're more hoping he turns into Al Jefferson on offense and Marcus Gasol on defense. 
Well, no, I think that's what you're hoping for, but I think Marcus Marcus is a really good offensive player. I think that sure. what, what he brings offensively is a little bit different than Allen. Trust me, I, I like Al Jefferson, but I think that what that brings is still a really valuable player in this league, if, assuming he can get up to, and if he can push above either of those levels, that would be wonderful. But Towns is just so compelling because he could end up being kind of this new era of five where he can defend the traditional way, but he can shoot all the way out, which is yeah. the there are coaches who just could be salivating at that even now. And if you think about where the league could be three to four years from now, it's a it could be a game changer in the way that I think Anthony Davis could be if a coach can use him right. Yeah, no doubt. And that's I think you you look at at uh, Miles Turner with Texas as well. Um, that ability to block a shot, to dominate on a glass, and also to step out and hit that jump shot is something that Turner has as well. Uh, maybe he he believes in that a little bit too much with his jump shot and falls in love with it. But that skill set, you know, if you have a player who who has a mentality that you can mold, you know, I think there's there's just a lot of intrigue in that. So I think yeah, I think Towns, like I said, if you can if you can dominate on both ends, and also provide floor spacing that's necessary in today's NBA. You know, right now I have Towns rated number one, uh, and I do have Okafor number two, uh, so I haven't dropped him that far. But I would if. I were left making a decision right now in the draft number one pick, it would be Towns, and it's for all those reasons you stated. What The other guy that illuminates a lot of these is Willie Cauley-Stein, because you and I were talking about how rim protection is one of the important things. Obviously, passing out of the post is not a strength for Willie yet. The guy that I've compared Cauley-Stein to is DeAndre Jordan, and that's not from a physical perspective. It's from an impact on the game. When I think of Willie Cauley-Stein in the pros— that's what I think of, even though he's a different player in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, and he's to me with with Willie Cauley Stein. It's not just his shot blocking; uh, it's it's his it's it's his ability to really step out, blow up a pick and roll, to defend the perimeter if need be, and really just to be an overall, you know, just real really wreck havoc on the defensive side of the court. That to me is again, we're watching it in Philadelphia with Nerlens Noel, whose ability to both block. Shots and forced turnovers is 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 incredible. To me, Willie Cauley Stein is kind of a little bit like that. Uh, I just I, I love his ability to play all around defense. When he gets switched out onto a supposed mismatch, to be able to hold his own. Uh, my only real and his improvement again in his, his free throw shooting has been great to see over the years. It's going to be really you know key for him going forward. But the only thing I'd really like to see him and Willie Cauley Stein improve upon is defensive rebounding. Um, that's the one area to me, and and you know a lot of times you'll look at at Kentucky and and, and think, well there just aren't that many defensive rebounding opportunities, and certainly playing alongside um, Carl Towns, you know he he eats up some of that, but Kentucky's not a really good defensive rebounding team. There's certainly some rebounds available for him, and he just needs to do a little better job of getting in position for that. And part of that, you know, is is inherent in a shot blocker. Uh, they're trying to impact, you know, be a team defender and impact shots that way. But I still think he can do a little bit better job on defensive glass. But Cauley Stein, again, we love rim protection, and, and I really love versatile rim protection that can pop out and, and defend a guard on a pick and roll, especially with how big that is in the NBA. That defensive versatility, I think, is 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 going to be very valuable for some teams. Yeah, Cauley Stein, to me, I, I think somebody might have been Kevin Pelton brought this up, but when I watch him, I think this is a guy who, if he's in the right situation, can compete for Defensive Player of the Year every year like he has that kind of talent I, I saw that in Nerlens as well and that is incredibly valuable that is a really good thing to have it's not yeah, an all-around problem, problem with competing with for defensive player of the year is that there's a lot of those guys in the NBA right now 
uh, between Nerlens Noel and, like you said, DeAndre Jordan, uh, Rudy Gobert. There's just a lot of really great young big man defenders. Um, it's it's kind of fun to watch in terms of a basketball perspective. But yeah, I think I think Willie Cauley Stein could be in that group. I consider him the fifth guy. Not he, I don't think he's top four, but I consider him the fifth guy. Who else do you see in that kind of morass that is everybody else right after that that you particularly think, if I were a GM and I were in the sixth spot, that's a guy that I would really like? Well, I actually, so I, I like I like Stanley Johnson quite a bit uh, from Arizona. Uh, you know, there's some legitimate concern with his finishing ability, but with the progress he's made with the jump shot and his defensive potential, I don't think he's a guy you're ever going to look at as his number one option, but I do think he's going to be a val- very valuable player. You know where exactly he falls. You know I think he's somewhere in that six to eight range, uh, even even with you know the knowledge that I don't think he's ever going to be a number one option. And I think sometimes we we look for that number one option uh, so much that we start looking for it in people that don't really have it. Uh, so I think some sometimes if if you look at someone like Johnson and yeah he doesn't finish well at the hoop, but he does a lot that can really help a team. And he's uh, good so defensively too. He's he's very good defensively and he's very versatile defensively and he's he's. You know, you don't have to worry about him filling out his body. That's already filled out, and he can he can defend, you know, really three positions in the NBA. And and I just love I love being able to switch on pick and rolls. I love being able to, you know, pick up multiple men in transition defense. Um, I I love that versatility. Going overseas, I like both of the Euro prospects right now. Uh, I'm a really big fan of Mario Hazonia. If you're talking about perimeter scorers, he might be the best perimeter scorer at the top of the draft. In in, in five years, I could see him being the best perimeter offensive player to come out you know six foot eight and he's just got a world of athleticism and when you combine that kind of athleticism with that kind of a jump shot and he's he's shooting you know i forget exactly what it is but i think he's shooting 38 or 39 percent in combined euro league and acb play uh he shoots the ball very well especially when he's shooting the ball in rhythm and like i said give me an athlete that great of an athlete and i think he's he's you know when he comes over and and does a combine you're gonna see he's one of the best athletes in the draft, if not the best, uh, for a wing player. That's a great combination. Uh, a lot of people are worried about his maturity. Uh, he can sometimes, you know, his body language on the court isn't always the best. Uh, he's confident is one way to look at it. And whether or not he's confident or he's cocky, um, whether or not he can rein that in and make sure that, you know, his keep his shot selection in line, not alienate other teammates, you know, it's hard to judge for a 19 or 20-year-old. Uh, yeah. But if he can, I think he's got the talent to be a, a, a top five pick in this draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be a top five pick, but I think he has that kind of talent. Uh, and Chris Stapps Porzingis, also playing the ACB, also 20 years old, uh, seven foot, seven one, and can just shoot the lights out. And when you're talking about a, a, a league right now that is very big on floor spacing, uh, really wants one of the two big men to be able to hit, preferably from three-point range, uh, he's, I think, a very valuable commodity. And what makes him valuable isn't just that he can shoot, because there are a lot of, of you know, stretch fours that can shoot, but he can block some shots, he moves his feet well enough to play good pick-and-roll defense, and he can shoot not just from a catch, but shooting coming off of the screen. He can shoot contested shots, shoot runners. Um, he's, he's got a very high release point uh, that he does a good job shooting off the dribble with. Uh, so I think he's going to be interesting. Now, he's, he's, he's rail thin, and I mean, he's, he's really thin. He, he right now would not be able to compete in the NBA. So you really have to look at him and determine whether or not you think he can add that muscle mass to be able to play and take the punishment and score through contact and rebound and hold his positioning. And if you think he can add that strength, then I think he's, you know, I think he's an incredibly talented player. Uh, he's certainly not the safest pick in the world because if he doesn't add that strength, uh, 
then I think there's there's real concern about what kind of role he can fulfill in the NBA. But you know, it's 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 big risk, big big reward. Uh, both of those guys I really like. I do like Justice Winslow quite a bit. Uh, you know, he had a really nice game uh, the other day. I think it was like 13-10 with like five assists and four steals. That kind of versatility, and again, he might not ever be a number one option. Although I think he can he can contribute more offensively in the NBA with the better fuller spacing, with the hand checking rules, with you know the further out three point line. Um, I think his his dribble drive game will open up a little bit in the NBA. Well, he's clearly got got some work to do to to, to increase his skill set in that regard. But he he has a great first step, plays really good defense, shooting the ball well, and I think he's going to be a very valuable player. Again, might might be a, a second or third option. But I like him quite a bit as well. And we already talked about Miles Turner. He's another one that I think is, is a little bit of a risk. Uh, he's he's fallen in love with that jump shot. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have the strength or the counter moves. All he doesn't really have anything with his left hand in the post. He doesn't really have a go-to move in the post. So if if he falls in love with that jump shot, you know I think there's a little bit of concern there. And he, he struggled quite a bit towards the end of the season with that jump shot. And right now he's a little overly reliant on it. But again, he can block shots at an elite level and rebound at an elite level. So those kind of guys will always get a chance. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. The guy that I've been thinking of for Hazonia, and it's hard to separate him as a prospect from what he's done since, is J.R. Smith. When I see Hazonia, I think of what I thought. I was in love with J.R. Smith as a prospect. I'm like, this guy's going to, this guy has all the tools to do it. And he ended up being, I would say, on the low end of what he could have been. And with Hazonia, you get an, it's kind of like another bite at the apple with a similar type of guy. Yeah, no, and so many of these guys, like you said, J.R. Smith was a very good prospect coming up. He had a lot of, of maturity questions, and I think his were a little bit more severe than Hazonia's are. I think Hazonia, it's, it's mostly just, you know, he's an incredibly competitive guy, and I think sometimes he doesn't channel that correctly. But certainly, I mean, J.R. Smith, you know, so much of success in the NBA is, is mental makeup. It's willingness to be coach. It's willingness to work on your weaknesses. And that, to me, is always, it's not the skill sets. It's not evaluating the skill sets that's the hardest part of, of trying to project these guys. It's figuring out how much of their potential they're really going to accomplish. I think his own, you could be a better defender uh, than J.R. Smith. I think he could be a better re- rebounder. And I think, he, I think he has some passing ability as well. So I, I hope he's a more all-around contributor than J.R. Smith has been. But, you know, a lot of that's going to come up to his approach, his willingness to work, his willingness to be coached, his willingness to take criticism. Uh, his willingness to be realistic about what his skills are and what his role in the team is. And, you know, so far he's, he's I think, one of the benefits of playing in the ACB, which I've always said I think the ACB has the second most talent in the world behind the NBA. And it's, it's playing with grown men, 26, 27, 28-year-old men. I think that kind of helps put him in line a little bit. It uh, helps him be a role player, whereas, you know, if he were over here in the United States playing in college, he'd probably be the star of his, his, his team. Uh, so I'm hoping maybe that experience trying to fit within a team will help him grow out of, uh, of that and really be realistic about who he is, what kind of shots he should be taking. But yeah, I mean, mental approach is always, it's always the hardest to engage with prospects and it's also the most important. And another part of that, which I've thought a lot about and something that Tim Hardaway Jr. talked about, I remember when he was drafted is that Hazonia has had the opportunity to be around professional basketball players. And he's been able to do that from a younger age. It's part of the reason why I support lowering the NBA age limit to, so that the, they can see what that's like because it's a totally different world. They don't have to have the illusion or reality of studying and everything related to being a student athlete, quote-unquote. And I think with a guy like Hazonia, that could be a really important thing because he has seen what it takes to be a professional player in a really good league. 
Yeah, and I mean, he hasn't really been doing that for the last year or two. He's really been doing that for the last four or five years. Exactly. Um, he's he's been there's you basically get fast tracked over there uh, if you're that good of a prospect. And he's he I mean he's been preparing for this for quite some time. I would love to see, and this is is kind of you know a side rant. I would love to see them continue to make the D League a, a, a real alternative to do that. I think you really have to get each team to have a one to one. Uh, affiliation, and I'm not sure what the holdup on that is. If some teams just don't want to put out the money, but I would love for each team to have their own D League affiliate, be able to use that as a legitimate farm system, and be be able to pay those guys what they're actually worth. Uh, you know, a lot of D League salaries are in the twenty to thirty thousand dollar a year range, which is crazy for a guy who can go overseas and get a million, two million, three million per year. It's just not a realistic alternative at this point. Uh, so I would love to see, like you said, play with grown men. Be a professional athlete. Put in the work. Put in the preparation. I would love to see that happen. I think the D-League is a really good opportunity to do that. But I think they really need to reform it. And, and they're going in the right direction, so I hope that they get there soon. But I don't think it can be right now. I think right now, you know, first of all, I think, like I said, it's not a real alternative to playing overseas. And everyone right now, you know, there's you can send out up to two players from your NBA roster down there but the rest of those guys are guys looking for a an nba contract they're looking to showcase themselves it's hard to really play in team concept down there because it's it's basically one big audition so i would love to see them finish fleshing out this d-league concept so it can really be like you said a, a place for you to learn how to be a professional and the larger point to me is that there's no reason why america can't have the first and second best professional leagues in the world i mean we have so much talent and we're losing so much talent think about a guy like moutier for no good reason. Yep. And the to have it be that they don't qualify academically or they don't want to go to college, which are both justifiable, or they want to make money, which is totally justifiable. And the reason that they're doing it is probably because they want to coexist with the NCAA. And there is no reason for that. I mean, Jimmer Fredette is not selling seats. He's not selling jerseys in the NBA because of his college success. Carmelo Anthony isn't doing that because of his college success. He's doing that because he's a really good player. And the NBA, I just don't understand it. Like, it's one of those things that there are very smart people who are making these decisions. And I just sit there and I go, I don't understand why. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Back onto the players. One guy that I've had a lot of struggle, I've had a lot of time struggling with is Frank Kaminsky. He's obviously a very talented basketball player. But do you think that he can defend fours in the NBA? Uh, if you had to ask me a yes or no, I would say no. Um, I think I think him his ability to defend in space is is by far the biggest question mark in, in him as a prospect. Uh, it's it's really hard. And again, you have so much stretch fours, stretch fives, pick and roll play. Uh, that to me is 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 going to be the biggest question mark with him uh, from an offensive standpoint, from a rebounding standpoint, from you know an all around game standpoint. He's to me a lottery talent. Will he make an impact on a lottery pick? I legitimately don't know. And I, I think that ability to, to defend fours and defend in space is by far the biggest question mark. If I had if I had to guess, I would say I would say no, and he's going to be somebody you're going to have to hide on that end. What I like in a way about this draft is that there's so many guys that are just you just can't necessarily put your hand around it, but there's a lot to like. I think about a guy like Kevon Looney of UCLA or Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who I've been on for years. So they're just they're guys who do certain things really well, and the the question is, can they do enough of the other things to keep them on the court? In a way, kind of like Doug McDermott last year. No doubt. I mean, you you brought up Rondé Hollis Jefferson, and the biggest criticism on him is that he's just not he's not aggressive enough offensively. Well, he's played on stacked teams at Arizona. 
you know, a lot of times I think we look at guys, it's, it's a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, if he goes out and he plays out of the confines of the Arizona system and takes more shots than he really should and plays, you know, tries to be that, that quote-unquote number one option, uh, which everybody is looking for with every pick in the NBA draft, which is kind of silly, but tries to showcase that skill that he can play a bigger role at the next level, well, then he gets criticized because he's not playing within the confines of the team. He's taking bad shots. He's he has all this talent, and he's not making use of it, and he's he's not playing to his strength. But then he plays to his strength, and you go, oh, he should be more aggressive. Uh, so I, you know, I think there's you're right. There's a lot of players that there's things that you like about them, and then things that you're not sure of. Kevin Looney's another great example. You know, he he impacts the game in so many ways, but really has very few go-to moves offensively. Uh, and whether or not you think that that's latent talent, just waiting to be untapped and, and developed, or whether or not you know he's going to struggle with that his whole career, there are very few sure things in this draft and a whole lot of, of things to like. And I think that makes it fascinating because you're going to look down the line, people pick 7th, 12th, 15th, who might end up being the best players in this draft, and I think that's fun. Or if not the best player, because I do think, I do think the top two specifically are, are going to be very good players. If not the best player, then you know one of the top players in this draft. Are you strangely intrigued to see Joshua Smith play against NBA players? Because I don't know if he'll get the chance, but I just want to see it. I'm, more than anything, I just want to see it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, he's 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 certainly entertaining to watch. He's been a disappointment in terms of his college career, but yeah, no, I mean that would that would anytime you have those fringe guys getting them up against NBA level talent, you know, you don't want to make too too big of a deal about NCAA tournament games and it's only one game. Um, but anytime, you know, the, the the benefit of it is that you're going against legitimate NBA talent. Uh, so yeah, it would it would be fascinating to watch. Are there any guys in the let's say the 25 and lower range that you that you would like to stump for that you think they're being underappreciated either by you know by people who who rank people or more importantly, but just in terms of buzz? Whew. Um, you know, I, I I hate to go with Chad Ford, but I think Malik Pope is going to be interesting. Um, you know, he's right now extremely inconsistent. I think he's going to go back for his, his year next year. You know, but he, to me, he has so much athleticism that jump shot, he shows signs. You know, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. You know, I think there's a lot of point guards in that area. You know, I don't know exactly where DeLon Wright is going to go, but I like him. I like his defensive potential. Uh, Christian Wood, I thought, has made a lot of progress so far this year. You know, his biggest, he's a big man who can really be a face-up power forward. And he's made a lot of progress in his jump shot, and I think that's been key for him. You know, again, his his biggest problem right now is, besides adding bulk, is going to be reining back his shot selection. Robert Upshaw, I think, is you know, if you're talking about a late round gamble, and he's, you know, he's played two collegiate seasons, he's been kicked off of two teams. There are serious, serious, serious question marks uh, with Robert Upshaw, but there's also serious talent. You know, like we were talking about with uh, Towns and Cully Stein. Big man who can dominate a game, and he can flat out dominate a game. I think he blocked about four and a half shots in, in like 25 minutes a night. He can flat out dominate a game defensively and change a game and hit the glass. And there's just a world of athletic talent there. And if somebody can get through to him and get him reliable, I think he's he's going to be really a really interesting prospect. And we're talking about a, a contract there, you know, in the late late 20s. You're talking about a million dollars a year for two years guaranteed. It's really not that much of a risk. So I would, I would, I would certainly take a flyer on him and just see, you know, just to get a year of of working with him and seeing what he's really like as a person. Justin Anderson, I think, is is probably a little underrated right now. 
Uh, a lot of people have him going in the late 20s. I love a 3 and D guy. And the improvement he's made on his jump shot, he's always been a, a very good, strong, versatile defender. The improvement he's made on his jump shot, I think, has, has been really big for his stock. Um, I would probably put him higher than, than the mid-late 20s, where I see him going a lot. Those are kind of the guys that jump out to me just on, on, on for, first blush. You know, again, Jerry and Grant, I don't know exactly where he's going to end up in the draft. Chris Dunn, too, uh, another very athletic point guard. I think, I think a lot of those point guards later in the draft are, are, are some good value. And as you brought up, it's a really great point that gets lost in the shuffle. Late first-round picks are incredibly good values, and it's always bothered me that those Suns teams gave those up because you're getting a guy who's really, really cheap. You have him under team control not only for those four years, but really for eight because if they're good, you can keep them. If you don't want them, then you can let them go. And they're barely more expensive than a roster spot, and it's a guy who's generally pretty good. So you can get, you can offload them if you really want to, but it's an amazing flyer that is just underappreciated sometimes. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you're talking about a minimum salary that is is just over five hundred thousand, and towards the end of the first round, you're talking about you know first and second year salaries of eight nine hundred thousand, uh, and after the second year, the third and fourth years are team options. Like you said, they're restricted free agents coming off of that. So yeah, I think there's you know I think people are a little bit too free, too willing to give those picks up, and I think I, I think that you know taking a gamble at that stage of the draft, I think is worthwhile. You know, a lot of times you get teams down there they're they're good teams. This year's kind of different because a lot of those teams have traded away their picks, but those kind of teams tend to want to find a role player because you know they're looking for that last piece or that bench contributor or something like that. But I think if you're a bad team down there at the late at the end of the first round. Take a flyer on a guy, see if it pans out. If it doesn't, it's not. There's not a whole lot of cost uh, that you've wasted. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And we'll move on to the team that you cover most for the NBA, and that's the Philadelphia Sixers. Which I mean, it, it ties right in because they're going to have eight draft picks this year. Something ridiculous. Something, like, something that. like that. Well, they'll they'll probably combine them in some form, but they have so many assets right now, and we can talk about those assets. But what I'm intrigued by is. The guys that are on the team right now, how do you see those players fitting in, let's say, two to three years from now on a much better Sixers team? Well, I mean, Nerlens Noel is, is obviously the centerpiece right now of the, the player, well, of the healthy centerpiece of the team, of ones currently playing. And he's just been fantastic in the second half of the season. Um, he was a good defender to start the year. He's been a great defender last, you know, basically since the All Star break. I think he's averaging something like 2.7 steals and like 2.5 blocks or something from the break. It's something ridiculous. And his offensive game has come around. Uh, he's shooting again in the 60 percent uh, in the 60s. I think it's actually close to, closer to 70 percent from the free throw line, which has been a a big boon for him. Uh, it was something he really struggled with in Kentucky and, and at the beginning of the season. Uh, you know, he's a guy who legitimately. I went back and I watched the tape. He didn't attempt a single jump shot at Kentucky during that, that half a season that he played. So for him to, to start making progress, and it's still the, the form doesn't look good. Um, it looks a little better on his jump shot than it does in game. But for him just to make progress and be able to hit that shot with, with any kind of, of, of frequency has been really good for him. And I think as a team, you know, there's kind of a transformation at the deadline when they traded Michael Carter Williams. They brought Isaiah Kanan in with or Kanan in with a, a separate trade. They got Jason Richardson back from injury, which is a great story in and of itself. Hollis Thompson came back. They kind of transformed into a pretty good three-point shooting team. Whereas at the beginning of the season, when they were, you know, the perimeter possessions were dominated by Michael Carter Williams and Tony Roten, they were one of the worst, you know, perimeter shooting teams I've ever seen in my life. So I think that transformation has helped Nerlens quite a bit offensively. 
given him a little more space to operate because really he's not, you know, he, he, he's a kind of big man. His strength is speed. So he needs space to really make that effective. So I think that's helped him offensively as well. I think he's averaging something like, this is off the top of my head, but something like 12 and 10, again, with those two and a half steals and blocks uh, since the All-Star break. So he's been fantastic. The question is going to be whether or not he fits with Joel Embiid. And I think defensively he can, because as we talked about earlier, uh, you know, he has this foot speed, the hand speed, to really play on the perimeter, defend, you know, perimeter power forwards and perimeter big men. I think he can do that. Now, obviously, you want his shot blocking, uh, but if you're if the reason he's out in the perimeter is because you have another elite level shot blocker in Joel Embiid behind him, then that's really not too big of a concern. The question is going to be come on the offensive side of the court. You know, Joel Embiid right now he's he's working out before games at practices, doing a lot of one on zero type stuff. But he's you know he's moving around well and he's really showing off a range that he didn't necessarily show off a whole lot at Kansas last year. But you know if you're looking to pair them offensively, you don't want Joel Embiid floating on the perimeter. You know, as a, a pick and pop big man, you want him rolling the basket. You want him setting up. You're you're wasting a very good post presence if you're forcing him on the perimeter like that. So I think Nerland's becoming a better shooter, not necessarily from three point range, but you know just from 15 to 17 feet. I think that's really going to be key for him, and key for whether or not he can work with with Joel Embiid. You know, I think one of the underrated aspects in Noel's game is that he's a he's a pretty decent passer, and you know he played in his AAU days. He played with uh, George's Yang, and he played a lot of high-low with him where, where Nerlens was, was in the high post uh, and passing quite a bit. And I think that's something that we didn't really see at Kentucky and we didn't really expect coming in. But if he's paired with Embiid and he has that jump shot to really force defenders out, you know, 15 feet away from the basket, you know, I, th- I, I think that can work. But I think that's a very big question mark. And for as well as, as Noel's playing, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not they can actually play together. You know, but the worst case scenario, let's say you draft somebody like Carl Towns, and all of a sudden you've got three really good big men, three really good defenders, and and in Towns and Okafor, or Towns and Embiid's case, two really good offensive players. You know, I think I think there's a rush to move on from one of them because you look at it and there's two starting spots and there's three people. You know, but there's 96 minutes between those two spots, and I think each of them. When you factor in injuries, they can be playing 32 to 35 minutes per game. They can get starters minutes. And worst case scenario, they're all three healthy. You know, now you can keep them fresh. You can keep them from overexerting yourself. They can play harder because they're not playing as many minutes. I still, to me, I go best player available in this draft. If that's Okafor, if that's Towns, I'm not drafting, you know, a perimeter player just because I already have two big men. So it'll be really interesting to see how they go and how all these pieces fit whether or not the Miami pick conveys this year, whether or not the Lakers pick conveys this year, the uh, OKC pick, and what they're able to do. Because those, to me, right now, if you're looking at, at guys that I think they're going to be here in three years, it's really only Noel and Embiid. Um, and I think, you know, even Noel's not a guarantee because of that fit. But all these other guys, you know, I like Robert Covington. And I think if you ask me the third most likely player to be around here in three years, I think Robert Covington is probably that guy. Um, he's to me a legitimate shooter. It's kind of amazing to me the su- success that he's had, considering he gets virtually no really open looks. And you'll look at him, and if you look at the stats, I think last time I checked, seventy-five percent of his catch and shoot jump shots were contested, which is is more than pretty much any other high volume shooter. And it's because the Sixers really don't have anybody to attract the double team. They don't have anybody to get that can really generate an open look. So when you know, you have a guy like Embiid, and he's shooting something like 42%, I want to say, on, on transition threes, because that's really the only time he has space to get up a clean and uncontested look. 
So when you look at a guy like Embiid, and I think Embiid's going to be, I, I, I'm, I'm extremely high on Embiid. I think he has, you don't see very many big men who can dominate defensively, be a, a really good rebounder, and legitimately be a, a very good post player and passer. And I think Embiid has all of that ability. And if he's able to be a post scorer in the NBA, I think Robert Covington's role is going to come really into focus. And I think he's going to be a great find. We were talking about the value of those those late first round picks. You know, Covington's on a very similar contract. He's on a signed a four year deal at just about a million per year. With I, I believe the last three are team options. So you know, he's on a a great long term deal, at least from the club's perspective. So it'll be really interesting to see how he fits with uh, with Embiid and and whoever else they draft, and whether or not that extra space can make him a little bit more effective. And the fourth guy I'd probably list is, has been Jeremy Grant. You know, he's he's just an absolute incredible athlete at that forward spot, either forward spot really. Can block shots quicker than than pretty much anyone, especially when he's playing four. Uh, and he showed for much of this year a very much improved shot. You know, he he really couldn't shoot at all at, at Syracuse. Uh, and for him to come in at one point during the season, he was shooting, you know, 40% from three. Uh, he's trailed off lately, but he's he's made incredible progress. And we look at guys with that kind of learning curve and that kind of athletic ability. It'll be interesting to see what he becomes in, in, in two to three years. Uh, so he would probably be my fourth most likely. But really the only, the one that I look at and I say, he's a sixer for the next eight years if he's healthy. That's that's Joel Embiid to me. And he's he's really the center of the Sixers universe. And as the center of the universe, one of the really illuminating points of what you were saying is as you were talking about Carl Towns, and what I was thinking about is that one of the differences between Towns and Oak Forest prospects is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, I can see Towns playing with Embiid and Noel, whereas I can't see Okafor playing with either. No, no doubt. If they draft Okafor, I mean, to me, the only way that the Sixers plan this rebuild, this tanking, whatever you want to call it, the only way it truly fails is if in three years you don't have a great player, a franchise player. If you have two of them, it's not really a concern. Uh, so no, if, if if both Okafor and Embiid work out, and Embiid's healthy, and he's and you know all of his foot and and back issues, they don't pop back up. And if Okafor then works out, I don't see them working well. The reason I have Okafor still listed number two if I were drafting for the Sixers is because you just don't know. And I, I love Embiid, and I think he's healthy. If, if he's healthy, he's going to work out. But I want to make sure I have you know, that franchise player, and I think Okafor is you know, in that top one to two in this draft who can be that. Agreed. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, especially defensively. You know, offensively, if Embiid's range is legitimate, and if Okafor can develop that 15 to 17-foot range, they're both really good passers. So as long as the floor spacing is there, you know, I think it would be really interesting to have two dominant post scorers because there aren't very many teams in the league that have two guys capable of defending a post scorer at all times on the court. So I think that would be interesting, but you got to worry about floor spacing. But the real worry is going to come on the defensive side of the court. Like yeah. I said, Okafor right now, just he doesn't defend the pick and roll well. He doesn't move his feet laterally well. I don't see him being able to play on the perimeter like that. So no, I I if Towns is unquestionably a better fit. You know, even if you look at them as passers, Okafor is a great passer from the post. Towns has a little bit more from the perimeter. He can he can run from that high post. He can run from that foul line area, uh, and he can make decisions based off of there. Even just the way they pass the ball, I think fits better for for Towns than it does for Okafor. Towns is unquestionably the better fit. Uh, he could play with either Embiid or Noel, um, and that to me would be a, a really fascinating three man. You know, big man rotation, because you just don't see it done like that in the NBA very much anymore. And having, you know, we we talked about 
you know, interior defense team defenders shot blocking like 14 times so far in this podcast, but having three of those guys would just be, it would give Brett Brown so many options. And you're, I mean, you're seeing what Brett Brown is doing with one of those guys. I think the Sixers are top five in the league defensively since the all-star break. They're top 11 in the league on the year. And that's playing with Nerlens Noel and just a bunch of guys. Uh, so if you give him Carl Towns and Joel Embiid on there, you know, I think it'll be really interesting what kind of defensive schemes they're able to come up with. And as you said, with the Sixers, it's all about ceiling. You know, you, that that's the way that you do this. You don't have to think about how the pieces fit together. It's just how good the pieces are because everything is so nebulous. And that gets into what I, the game that I've been playing with a lot of NBA people, and I consider it a lot of fun, which is, would you rather have Michael Carter-Williams or the Lakers pick? Oh, the Lakers pick. There's there's not even any question. You know, it was, it was interesting. ESPN's insider pulled 25 guys in the league to rank the top 30 point guards, and Michael Carter-Williams didn't make the list. Um, now, that's not, you know, my main point there is a lot of people say, well, how could you trade Michael Carter-Williams, who is a known commodity for an uncertainty in that Lakers pick? Well, Michael Carter-Williams is an uncertainty, too. His jump shot has to improve for him to be a really impact player in this league. And I don't, you know, at 23 years old now, uh, and with the amount of attempts that he has both in college and, and the NBA, I'm not confident in that happening. And if that doesn't happen, I don't see him being a real, even a top 15 point guard in this league. Um, I think he's, he's, his playmaking is incredible in the open court. I think there were some struggles in the half court. He wasn't comfortable on the pick and roll. And when you're building a team around Joel Embiid, I think you need that guy to be able to play the pick and roll game, be able to hit either Embiid diving to the hoop or, or, or guys stationed out in the corner. And Mike Carter-Williams was never really comfortable with that. If you break down his turnover ratio, I think his assist turnover ratio in the half court was about 1.5 to 1. Um, he really got turnover prone in the half court. And part of that was his role with the team and the spacing and whatnot. You know, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty with Michael Carter-Williams, just like there is you know, when you make a trade and you ch- take a guy out of an environment, put him in a new environment, and just like there's uncertainty with a draft pick. So, uh, no, I, I think, you know, like you said, it's about, it's about getting greatness right now. And you don't, over, you don't pass over greatness because you have a guy who could be okay. Exactly. And Michael Carter-Williams has the kind of, I guess you could call it the limitation that if you want to think about it, that he's only about two years away from being paid properly. Because what you think about with restricted free agency is if a guy isn't a max guy, then he's going to get paid properly. Same issue with Brandon Knight. And you... That'll be the first year of the new TV deal, too. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you, so you get into that situation, and so even if, maybe not his best case, because I guess in his best case, somehow he's a max guy. I don't see it, but it's possible. So then he's going to be getting paid market value right when the Sixers might have the ability to have that mega year where they still have all these guys on cheap contracts if they're willing to become a luxury tax team. And he loses that, and why would you give up that flexibility for a guy who is at who's a nice player, but he's not indispensable in any way. And I was very shocked to see the, the kind of the people were like, oh, you do that. Because the Lakers pick is not going to be a non-lottery pick. They're not making the playoffs next year. I mean, even no. if they got Kevin Love, which I don't think is going to happen, even if they got Kevin Love, they're not making the playoffs in the West next year. Even if they went to a top 16, they're not making the playoffs next year. No. So... It's a great asset, and I'm shocked that the Suns gave it up. I'm more shocked that the Suns gave it up for Brandon Knight. But it's just so shocking because while Michael Carter-Williams can be a very good thing, a roll of the dice to me, so if you want to imagine it, a roll of the dice can get you anything from 1 to 6, but 
they're more of pieces of the die that I would rather have than Michael Carter Williams. You know, maybe yeah. maybe maybe you get a one, and maybe that one is worse than him. But a two, a two is, and then you you have the possibility of a six. And as we talked about the Sixers, that's really what matters. Yeah. No, and I mean, you know, with the Lakers, yeah, they have they have gobs and gobs of cap space. You know, but this is a team that thought adding Carlos Boozer to their squad would have been a good idea and made basketball sense. Uh, this is a team that hired Byron Scott. And as long as Byron Scott's there, yeah, they might improve. That pick might be in the seven to ten range rather than the, you know, three to five range because next year it's only top three protected. So it might not be as great as the Sixers are hoping, but it's still going to be a. Uh, to me, I think it's really going to be a top ten pick still. And yeah, you just don't, you know, it's it's so much of a player's value is how well they fit on a team, and you can't really know how well someone's going to fit until you get that star to really fit them around. And right now, like I said, I Joel Embiid's the center of the Sixers universe. I don't see a fit with Michael Carter-Williams. And you're right, you have to pay him in two years. He's going to get very expensive. And then you also have these rookie contracts right now. The rookie contracts are set for the duration of, this, of the collective bargaining agreement. They don't go up as basketball-related income goes up. So a top 10 pick right now is a great deal, but it's going to be an even better deal when that salary cap you know, gets increased by you know 50% or whatever it is. But these, these first-round picks stay the same because they're already set. Uh, so, yeah, you not only do you get to extend that decision, that, that cheap rookie contract another two years, not only do you get a, a chance to get a player who might be better than Michael Carter-Williams and has a better shot of becoming a franchise player, but you also get that, that incredibly valuable deal that's you know ba- being based off of the old basketball-related income, but now you're in a completely new environment. That is an amazing point. I'm really happy you made it because those 2016 picks are going to be worth their weight in gold because they they hit both things. And 2017, it'll be crazy because that could be a potential lockout or everything. I believe yeah. would would well theoretically, I think the if assuming they tear up the CBA, whether there's a lockout or not, that the 2017 picks presumably would be subject to the a new rookie scale if there's a new CBA. Is that does that sound right to you? Uh, well, I think I think I think the season technically ends on July first, so I think that's when the old CBA they could opt out is July first. I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but I think it might come just days after the draft. Okay, so that that'll be interesting. But yeah, I mean that's that's just a really great point, and they'll get that pick next year. I mean, they're, the way uh, unless the late because you can't plan. What I love about top three protection is you can't plan on getting it. Because even if you're the worst team in the league, there's still a pretty decent chance that you're going to lose it. So, it, unless they change the the tanking rules, quote unquote, which well, of I mean, you look you look ahead. at the Sixers, and I mean, people have been up in arms year after both these past two years about what they've doing been doing. They're not going to finish with the worst record either of these two years. Yep. Uh, they ended up with the third pick for their efforts last year. Right now, they have the third worst record. They could fall all the way to the sixth. So you're right. There's certainly no guarantee of getting a top three pick. And the Lakers are too proud to blatantly tank anyway, and for the limited amount that we know about their TV deal, it makes no sense. And it's Kobe's last year. He already said to the Hollywood Reporter, I believe, that the next year is going to be his last year. So the Lakers aren't going to fall on their sword. They might be so bad that the sword impales them anyway, but they're not going to be that team that does that just basically throws everything away to be as bad as they can be. The Lakers are not going to do that, which I think helps the Sixers. You can think about it either way, but if they're still not going to be good and they're not, then I think that's a good thing for them. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, it's it's like I said, with Byron Scott coaching them, even with all that cap space, I'm not worried about them making playoffs. Not in the West. There's just no chance. Yeah. Um, so I think, 
you know, I, th- I think they'll end up with the sixth to eighth worst, worst record. And it's impossible to really predict right now. But based on my completely meaningless prediction, I think that's probably where they're going to end up. And I would be absolutely okay with that. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to convey to the listeners? Jeez, I think we pretty much touched on everything. Oh, I have one. So we're, we're sure. putting, this will be put out. Who do you think, other than Kentucky, who do you think has the best chance of winning the championship? Oh, well, you can't, you can't take away Kentucky like that. Yes, I can. <laughs> well, I have Kentucky winning uh, the championship. I do like the way Wisconsin plays. Uh, but if I had to pick someone other than Kentucky, I would probably go Arizona. Yeah, that's uh, my pick, you know, too. For, for them to be able to play and really take Ohio State out of the game like that. And Ohio State's not a great team by any stretch of the imagination. They have a great player. You know, but the, for them to be able to win with Stanley Johnson contributing so little offensively, it just goes to show the depth that they have. And a team with that kind of depth and that kind of talent, and that can play defense like they can, uh, they're the one team I can see upsetting Kentucky. But I, you know, it's boring to pick Kentucky, but I picked Kentucky. So did I. But yeah, I, I think Arizona has talent and... No matter what, I think that the first set of games, the Sweet 16 games, are going to be a lot of fun because there are some teams that have capability, and you're going to have some... I, I mean, there's still some... And NC State's still in the tournament, which is weird. Yep. And I, I'm excited to see it, and we're still... We still have a lot of prospects, too. We talked about at the beginning that we're going to get a chance to see some of these players. Hopefully, we get the Wisconsin-Arizona game because that would be very nice for a, a series of guys, but... We're going to get to see some of these NBA talents face other NBA talents, and you don't get many of those chances in a college season. Yep. No, and, and speaking of NC State, the Sixers PR director is from NC State, uh, who beat Villanova, so it'll be interesting. They've been on the road, so it'll be interesting to see the interaction between him and the rest of the media when he gets back, whether or not he will be proud of his NC State team. But I also think Duke-Utah uh, is going to be a really fun matchup uh, coming up as well. You know, with Jacob Poetel, you know, he really has not the strength, but he can he can challenge some shots, and it'll be interesting to see him contest Okafor, uh, whether that's on or off the ball, and, and how much impact he can have. You know, DeLon Wright, uh, see whether or not he can have an impact on that game. I think that'll be a really interesting matchup as well. And if Utah beats Duke, I could see Poetel making a big jump in terms of his hype and stature in the draft. Yeah, no, certainly, and and and... Again, rim protection, athleticism from a big, uh, he's got that. Uh, I think, you know, you asked me, you know, guys later in the first round that, that could move up. He's a guy that I could see sneaking in the lottery just because of that that potential. Um, still has a lot of work to do to fill out his frame and, and diversify his offensive game. But again, big men who can who can rebound and block shots, are, they're always in the band. Yeah, it'll be fun to see. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Draft Express, Liberty Ballers, and he is the Sixers beat writer for FM 97.3 in the Philadelphia area. You can also follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA. That's D-E-R-E-K-B-O-D-N-E-R-N-B-A. Loved having him on. As I said in the intro, I didn't tell him that the idea kind of was to do a podcast for the people who weren't as engaged in college basketball and are more in the NBA, but to get them ready for the draft and for this weekend because these are the better games in terms of evaluating potential NBA talent because they're going against better talent. Also really enjoyed the conversation on the Sixers. I think their situation is really compelling. And adding the Lakers pick and exchanging that for Michael Carter-Williams I think was a great move for them because it fits what they're doing and Michael Carter-Williams they sold incredibly high on him so that was a good move so thanks again to Derek 
I appreciate all of your input. I've been getting, I continue to get it. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.